All right, we're going to get started here in a few minutes with 1 Samuel. If you want to open your Bibles to 1 Samuel. Now, you guys who are in the, uh, and ladies who are in the Bible study last year, y'all know 1 Samuel well, so I'll try to give you something new. We have uh, lots of interpretive issues uh, on 1 Samuel. Maybe we'll get to them all today. That would be fun. What's your favorite thing about 1 Samuel, Frank? It's in the Bible. It's in the Bible. <laughs> that's, that's pretty good, yeah. Try something else. <laughs> Jesus. How does uh, how does First Samuel point towards Jesus? Yeah, he said obedience is better than sacrifice. We're going to look at that today. And uh, I think you said king, right? Yeah, the promise of a king and the failure of the first king. Uh, both of those are together pointing to Christ, which should also come up in today's sermon, briefly. All right, let me open in prayer, and then we'll, uh, we'll begin. Lord, I'm thankful that we can study your word this morning, that we can look at the Old Testament. It really is a, a morning focused on the Old Testament, and I pray in First Samuel we would see this need for a king, for a godly ruler. Uh, I pray that we would look to you and, and want to obey your word, that these lessons in First Samuel would sink into our heart, last throughout the day, throughout the week, throughout our life, and help us to remember the things we learn here so that we can understand it better when we read it. We pray this in the Lord Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, First Samuel. Just to reorient you on where we're at, we are looking at the uh, Old Testament. Where's 1 Samuel? It's in your Bibles. It's in that part called the Old Testament. The first two-thirds of your Bible. And the Hebrew Bible, this is uh, the order that the Jewish people even today still have their Bibles in. They, of course, only use the Old Testament if they're not, if they're not redeemed by Christ. They are still just reading their Old Testament. And it's in this order. Has been since the days of Jesus. Maybe going back even further. We are in Samuel. You'll only see Samuel and Kings. There's not a first and second. It's one book to them. Everybody really acknowledges that it's by the same author, whoever that author is, even today. It got divided later, which we'll look at in a moment. But in their mind, there's Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. And it just so happens that Samuel covers a lot and Kings covers a lot. And then you have things like Ruth that we looked at last week are included in the writings. That's near the end. The latter third of their Old Testament would include things like Ruth and Esther and Daniel. Those that are sort of mixed in in our Bibles. You're more familiar with this order. This is our English Protestant Bibles. Protestant meaning we don't have all the Apocrypha that the Catholics and the Orthodox have. So here we have uh, the first five books, same as the Hebrew uh, Jewish Bible, but the history books are different. They're ordered differently. So we have Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd King. Uh, that should read 1st and 2nd Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. Then wisdom and poetry, then all the prophetic books. Let me go to the New Testament. So we are in still in this, what we call the historical books. Why is it called the historical books? It's talking about the history of Israel. Once they come into the land, what's the history? What's happening? What happens in between the history of Israel and the New Testament? Or even the time of the prophets? Let's talk about the name. Uh, in Hebrew, it's just Samuel or Shemuel. Um, and in the Septuagint, which was a Greek version of the Old Testament, before Jesus uh, came into the world a couple hundred years before that. So many Jewish people were speaking Greek and forgetting Hebrew. They translated it into Greek. It's called the Septuagint, which means 70, or LXX, which means 70 Roman numerals. Uh, and they divided it up, 1st and 2nd Kings. So our first Samuel is their first kingdoms. And then the Vulgate uh, calls it 1st Kings. Which is kind of confusing, right? Because it's not even first our first kings, right? We have Samuel, which we call the first half, first Samuel. The Septuagint has first kingdoms. The Latin Vulgate, which the Roman Catholic Church, that's still their official translation, first kings. 
So Frank, you should remember this. How many King's books are there in the Latin Vulgate or in the Roman Catholic Bible? Four Kings, right? Because you have what we would call First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. They just number them all First, Second, Third, Fourth Kings. And then the Septuagint just has First and Second Kingdoms. I'm not sure what they do with Chronicles and Kings, but maybe we'll look at that when we get there. Who wrote it? Many of these books we don't know who wrote it. Our best guess, my best guess, would be Ezra. Why Ezra? Well, the, the first and second Samuel runs all the way up to the time of Ezra. Ezra's already writing Ezra, Nehemiah. So he's a good candidate. He also knew a lot about being a priest and, and probably the history of the prophets with Samuel and the prophetic school. So Ezra's my best guess. Many scholars guess Ezra. You guys got any other candidates you want to throw out there? Nobody's written a PhD thesis on uh, the author of Samuel. What do you think, David? You going with you going with Ezra? You just going to agree with me? I like that. Yeah, that's good. Some people say Samuel, and that sounds great. What's the problem with saying Samuel wrote Samuel? He dies. When does he die? Long before the book ends. First Samuel ends, much less Second Samuel. Second Samuel takes place uh, pretty much the reign of David is Second Samuel, and so Samuel's long dead before Second Samuel rolls around. We can't have Samuel writing something from the grave, even though he will make a post-death appearance uh, at the end of 1 Samuel. It's certainly not to write a book of the Bible. So uh, we don't know who it was. It wasn't Samuel. Unless Samuel wrote the part about his life and then passed it on down the line to Ezra. But those are things that God didn't give us to know. What's the theme? A short theme, a short purpose would be Judges to Kings. What's the transition from the book of Judges and the fact that he had judges ruling to the point of kings ruling in Israel. So there's a transition period happening in Israel here and a theocracy to monarchy. So before Judges, God ruled directly over Israel. Now they're going to say, we want a king of our own. Not you, God. We want our own king, like the nations, like the Gentiles. So they're going to have a king. Everybody got a handout that would like to have a handout? What's the purpose? The purpose is Yahweh. Who's Yahweh? God, the covenant name of God in the Old Testament is Yahweh. That's like we have Jesus. He is the Lord. He is the Son of God, but his personal name is Jesus. Well, in the Old Testament, the personal name of God is Yahweh. In Hebrew, it's just transliterated into English. So we have Yahweh established a human monarchy. That's the point of 1 Samuel. He established a human monarchy over his theocratic nation, Israel. And he guaranteed its future and his covenant with David. This is what we'll see in the second book, 2 Samuel. But right now, 1 Samuel is about establishing that monarchy, first in Saul, then in David. What are the dates? We looked at a timeline last week. I drew a timeline, showed you where I thought judges would fit. The dates between uh, 1 and 2 Samuel are uh, 1110 B.C. to the very last words of David and 2 Samuel 970 B.C. So we're pretty good on the date there of uh, David's death. 970 is pretty certain. Uh, A little fuzzy on the beginning date here. Samuel's probably born in 1110 B.C. If you put the the years that Samuel lived and the years that Saul reigned and the years that David lived, we can work backwards. So what's a good outline? Why do we care about outlines in books? It's not probably because you're going to write a commentary on this. You may, may or may not teach it. Some of you will teach the book of 1 Samuel. I know we had some experience with various teachers last year teaching the men's and women's Bible studies. But uh, outline helps us to break down the book and see what God wanted the main focus to be. If you just take off reading a book, you'll get a lot out of it. God's word is like that. But sometimes it's nice to say, what are the main points of this book? What's, what's the Holy Spirit trying to emphasize to us? And the first major point is the prophet Samuel. It's about Samuel. This book is, is really biographical. Um, it's, it's about Samuel, it's about Saul, it's about David. So it's biographical. And first seven chapters is the prophet Samuel and how he judged Israel. So the first four, he's the prophet. He, he's born, look at the, the first few verses of chapter one. Now there was a certain man from Ramoth Zophim from the hill country of Ephraim. His name was Elkanah, the son of of Jehoram, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, 
and the name of the other Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. So we have a barren woman here. She doesn't have any children. She cries out to God. She goes up to the tabernacle. She cries out to God. She prays to God. Uh, so much so that the high priest thinks she's drunk. And he sort of makes fun of her. And then, lo and behold, God blesses this barren woman. And she has a child, which points us to the miraculous Mary conception of Jesus, who has a child as well. So if you compare Hannah's song in chapter 2 to Mary's song in Luke, you're going to find a lot of parallels. And when we went through Samuel, we found a lot of parallels. It's, it's amazing how a book like this you don't think is pointing directly to Christ, but there's so many parallels between Hannah and Mary. Even though Hannah was married, Hannah's not a virgin, uh, there's so many parallels of her calling out to God and praising God for this little baby boy. So we have Samuel born into the world. By the time he's probably 12, he's hearing from God. He's hearing the voice of God. He's responding. He thinks it's, it's Eli the high priest, but it's not. And God's talking to him, and God is telling him things to do. So we have Samuel being raised up in the tabernacle. His mother basically gives him to service in the tabernacle, as she promised to do with him when he was born. Then we have Saul. Saul is the king that's very popular with the people of Israel. Saul is a tall, handsome, strong man. He looks like what they would want in a king. They look at outside appearances. God looks at the heart. That's a recurring theme in 1 Samuel. And, and Israel really likes the thought of Saul being king. Does Saul want to be king? He does not want to be king. He hides out in the baggage, remember? He's scared. He's worried. He's concerned about what might happen to him. He knows he's not up for the task. But God does, in his decree, say, this is the one. This is the one that I'm appointing. Yes, it's God's decree, but it's also punishment on Israel for the way they went about this. They went about it the wrong way. They said, we want a king like the nation. So look at chapter 8. And whenever they're throwing off their king, Yahweh, and taking on a man, they're really throwing off God. They're really saying, we, we don't want God to reign directly over us. We want a king like the other nations. First uh, Samuel 8, And it came about when Samuel was old that he appointed his sons the judges over Israel. Now the name of his firstborn was Joel, the name of his second, Abijah. They were judging in Beersheba. Um, his sons, however, did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after dishonest gain, took bribes, and preferred justice. So here's a godly man who hasn't, he hasn't disciplined his sons. Either growing up he hasn't, or maybe he did when they were young, but now they're older. They're sort of working under their, their father here, and he seems to let them run amok. Uh, he should have just removed them from these positions of authority. They did not follow their father's ways. So what happens in verse 4, all the elders of Israel gathered together, came to Samuel at Ramah, and they said to him, Behold, you've grown old. Your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. Where did this originally come from? Did this come from God or did this come from the nation Israel? It comes from Israel, right? They want a king. Why? Because they think things are falling apart. They're concerned about what's happening, so they want a king. And look at verse 6. But this thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel. Why? Because he did not want them to have a king. Because he knew God did not want them to have a king. It's displeasing. It was displeasing. They said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you. Quit worrying so much. Samuel, they haven't rejected you, but they've rejected me, God says, from being king over them. They've rejected God. It's not just as if they wanted a ruler like we elect a president. They were rejecting God. They thought he wasn't good enough. Give us a man. Give us somebody like the nations have. Like all the deeds, God says, which they have done since the day I brought them up from the Egypt, even to this day, and that they have forsaken me and served other gods. So they are doing to you also. Now then listen to their voice. However, you shall solemnly warn them and tell them of the procedure of the king who will reign over them. So he goes on to warn them. 
Look at this in verse 11, chapter 8. He said, this will be the procedure of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and place them for himself in his chariots and among his horsemen. And they will run before his chariots. He's going to draft all of your sons into the military. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and of fifty. So he's going to multiply a standing army in the nation. And some to do his plowing and to reap his harvest. Uh, you are going to be working for the king. You work for your families. You work for your tribes. But now you're going to start working for the ruler of the nation. You're going to make his weapons of war, his equipment for chariots. He will also take your daughters uh, for perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields, your vineyards, give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your seed. And so we're talking about a tithe, the tax to the people. He will take your male servants, your female servants, your best young men, your donkeys. This does not sound like a good deal, does it? And you might think, well, they need it. They need an army, right? Don't they need an army? I mean, don't we need an army today? Well, what had happened previous to this? What happened when Joshua came into the land? Did they need a standing army? No, all the men were expected to come out and fight. And so that's the way it was in Judges. But in Judges, you had sin continue to come back into the nation and twist and and cause idolatry and cause uh, so much evil. So they're saying, we want a king, we want a king. So you have Saul chosen. Uh, really, God appoints him, of course, but uh, Saul is really chosen by the people as well. And he declines in the last few chapters there uh, leading up to chapter 15. What was Saul's downfall? What was his downfall? Anybody got that? What caused Saul to decline before David comes on the scene? Let the Amalekites live. He did not, he did not kill them all like God told them to do. He did not obey God. He did not obey God. Over and over you see that right away from the time he's hiding all the way through chapter 15 and even through the end of the book when David is now the appointed king, Saul refuses to accept it and continues to kill, uh, try to kill God's appointed one. And then the next section is on David. So we had Samuel, we had Saul, and now we have David. From 16 to 31, he is the Lord's elect king of Israel. There's lots of subpoints we could put on here. I, I didn't put them on the slide because I didn't think it was that important. But uh, different movements happening in these chapters to show how God has appointed David. And David is humble. He's not like Saul. Saul is prideful. David is humble. Saul uh, wants to focus on his power and his might and his authority. David is trying to serve the Lord. David also doesn't want to jump up and be king, but it's a different attitude in his heart. He's a man after God's own heart. And so God shows the nation slowly that this is the king. When he, when he kills Goliath, that brings him notoriety. When he goes out to fight with Saul's army, that brings him notoriety. So by the time he's officially appointed king in front of everyone, they all recognize God has done this. God has brought this about. Whereas with Saul, they didn't care that Saul had shown them or not shown them anything. They just chose him as the most tall, handsome, king-like figure amongst them. Here's sort of the structure of First and Second Samuel. We have Samuel for 60 years as a, as a prophet and a judge. Then we have Saul reigning for 40 and then David's going to reign for 40. So that's generally where we get the timeline. The book's cut off right here. So this was all 2 Samuel, focusing on David's reign. And this is 1 Samuel. Even though David uh, is in part of 1 Samuel, of course, uh, those last few chapters, it's, it's mainly focused on Samuel, Saul, and then ends with David. This is something I showed you a few weeks ago about the historical books or what, what the Jews uh, just call the former prophets. What's the point of these books? What's the pinnacle? What's the, the main thing we're going to see? The establishment of David's dynasty and the land of Israel. This is the main point right here. So we see Joshua and Judges leading up. And then we see this period of idolatry here. Needing a king in the land, God gives them his king, David. And then what happens with David? Is he perfect? Is he the perfect ruler? Is he the Messiah? Is he the one that, that will finally bring peace in the land and conquer all their enemies and be the perfect Messiah? No, he sins. 
What's the punishment for that sin? That his descendants, especially Solomon, will have problems, we'll just say. We'll talk about those when, when we get to Solomon. And that Solomon also is going to be punished for his idolatry and his multiplying of wives. Solomon's descendants, his son, will have a divided kingdom, and it just goes downhill from there. So we have a huge period of idolatry leading up here to David's reign and then following David's reign with his son Solomon. And by the time we get to 1 Kings 12, things are getting really bad. We just have one king after the other doing pagan, evil things in the land that are not right, that are not just. And then in 586, Frank, don't answer. What happens in 586? Somebody other than Frank? 586? Babylon. Yeah, Babylon comes in and completely destroys and conquers the, the capital, Jerusalem. The nation's done. They're finished for that time. And different people rule. They do get a little time where they take it back, but it's not really with godly leaders. The Romans come and take it from them. The Greeks, the Jews, the Romans, and even up till modern times, until the 1940s, the Gentiles were trampling underfoot Jerusalem. What happened in 1406? They came into the land. Yeah, they came into the land. So 820 years in the land. One, uh, not 110. 1406 to 586. 820 years. God gave them everything. He said he would protect them. He said he would provide for them. And what happened? All of that happened. Idolatry is the main issue. And turning away from God leads to idolatry. Key chapters. We have in the first four chapters that transition from Eli the high priest to Samuel. Samuel is not really called the high priest, but he functions basically as a high priest after Eli dies. Eli also had some very sinful sons, described in much more uh, issues than Samuel's sons even. And so they are killed in battle. God takes the Ark of the Covenant away, and it does not return for some time. Uh, Samuel basically becomes the leading priest and prophet. And it's really with Samuel that we start the prophet's in Israel. Before Samuel, there were people prophesying. There were prophetesses and there were prophets. But with Samuel, you, you start this whole class or called the school of the prophets. A group of people called prophets who spoke the words of God. Eight to ten, they choose a king. That's Saul. Uh, Saul assumes a priestly office in chapter 13. In 13, what is Saul doing assuming a priestly office? He, he should not be doing that, but he gets impatient. He gets impatient. So let's go to 13.6. When the men of Israel saw that they were in straight, for the people were hard-pressed. That's old King James word. They're straight. They're, they're in a tough spot. They're between a rock and a hard place. Then the people hid themselves in caves and thickets and cliffs and cellars and pits. Also some of the Hebrews crossed the Jordan into the land of Gad and Gilead. But as for Saul, he was still in Gilgal and all the people following him trembling. Now he waited seven days, according to the appointed time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal. The people were scattering from him. So, you know, what do you do? What's the right thing to do? What's the pragmatic thing to do? So Saul said, bring to me the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. You know, if men aren't going to preach, then we'll have women preach in this church. That's the way thinking goes, right? If, if Samuel's not going to show up, hey, I'm going to be the high priest today. I'm just going to, Saul says, I'm just going to take care of it. That's the kind of pragmatic thinking that comes from the world. You know, hey, if nobody's going to do the job, then I'll step up and do the job. Well, that's a problem because God has not appointed Saul as a high priest. There is always to be a separation until Christ came between king and high priest. And only the one that God had appointed as a priest could do offerings. Even the, even the lower priest, Saul should never have done this. As soon as he finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. As soon as he's done, Samuel shows up. Saul went out to meet him and to greet him. He thinks everything's fine. There's no problem with this. But Samuel said, what have you done? How would you like the prophet of God to say that to you? What have you done? And Saul said, because, because I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the appointed days, and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash. You see his excuses? He's just lining them up. He's already got them in his head, right? So first he tries to fake it. 
hey, it's so good to see you. It's great that you're here finally. And then Samuel says, what have you done? And Saul says, well, I got these three huge excuses. I mean, you can understand, right? God can understand, certainly. Therefore, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not asked the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. You like that? I forced myself. I just had to do I just forced myself. I mean, it had to be done. It just had to be done. You know, it's better that he would have waited an hour. I don't know how long it takes to do a sacrifice. 30 minutes, an hour, two hours maybe to skin the animal and cut it up, offer it on a, a fire. But he, uh, he didn't. He wanted to do it his own way. And so Samuel said to Saul, you have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. So yeah, the Amalekites were a big issue, but this is where it starts here. You, you would have had a kingdom forever. But now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart. He's going to find a king that's truly after God's own heart because Saul cares about himself, first of all. And the Lord has appointed him as ruler. This man's already out there somewhere. And God's appointed him as ruler over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. This is a huge sin on his part. It shows that he doesn't care about obeying the Lord. And even when he's called out on it, he continues to make excuses. And you don't even see anything else said. Samuel rose up and went from Gilgal to Gibeah to Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. So we have Saul assuming priestly office. We have 15. Saul spares the Amalekites. He's supposed to go in and completely wipe them out. God gives them victory in battle. He gives them victory in battle. He's supposed to take everything and wipe it out, just like Joshua did when they came into the land. But you know, what happened when they came into the land after Joshua died? Oh, we have all these people around here that they could be killed or they could be free labor. We need our wood chop. We'll just tell the Philistines to come over here and chop our wood. We need our our calves slaughtered. We're going to have them come do the dirty work there. And they took them on as servants. We're going to see the same idea here in Saul. Uh, 15.4, then Saul summoned the people, numbered them. Uh, Verse 6, so he has this huge army. Saul said to the Kenites, go depart, uh, go down from among the Amalekites so that I do not destroy you with them. So he shows some mercy to the Kenites, for you showed kindness to all the sons of Israel when they came up from Egypt. So the Kenites departed. Verse 8, he captured Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, all that was good and were not willing to destroy them utterly. So in the case of, of Judges, they didn't destroy the people because they wanted to use them as slaves. In the case of Saul here, he thinks, well, this king's going to make a great trophy and look at all this wealth. Certainly God wouldn't want us to throw it away, right? I mean, come on. God has given him all this wealth right in his hands. Certainly God would change his mind now and, and think differently. So Saul starts to reason again. That's a problem. He did not destroy them utterly, but everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. So whatever they didn't care for, sure, no problem. You know, I don't, I don't see dogs and cats and things like that listed. So I guess they thought, you know, pets and, and uh, different things that were worthless to them. They destroyed the idols, probably. They destroyed anything that wasn't a sign of wealth that they could use for themselves. Verse 10, Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me. He's not carried out my commands. And Samuel was distressed and cried out to the Lord all night. It wasn't like Samuel didn't care. Samuel cared. Samuel had been a part of appointing the first king in Israel. How would you like to to train up the first disciple in San Antonio or the first disciple in Bernie ever? And then later that guy turns away from the faith. 
You know, that would have been crushing. This is the first king of Israel. This is even, we could say on a political level, greater. And we have him turning away over and over. So what's going to happen? Picking up in 13 or 12, Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul. So Samuel's not even there yet. And it was told Samuel saying, Saul came to Carmel and behold, he set up a monument for himself. More pride. Set up his own monument. Then he turned and he proceeded on down to Gilgal. Samuel came to Saul. Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have carried out the command of the Lord. It's so good to see you again, Samuel. You wait till you hear the news. I did exactly like God said. What do you think is going to happen with that? But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? It's not like you could hide all these hundreds, maybe thousands of animals. What's, you're, you're encamped as an army. What's this herd of animals that you suddenly have? What, what are you trying to do here? Of course, Samuel already knew because God had told him. But Saul didn't know that God had told Samuel. Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and oxen. To sacrifice to the Lord your God, but the rest we have utterly destroyed. We did everything but this, this one little thing. Come on, can't you? And, and by the way, it's the people who wanted me to do it. What does that remind you of? Going way back to the beginning of the Bible. What does that remind you of? Adam blamed who? Eve, and essentially blamed God, right? It's this woman whom you, God, gave me. It's her fault this whole thing happened in the first place. It's her fault I sinned, Adam says. And here, we just see that over and over in our lives too. But here, here is Saul. It's, it's the people's fault. They did it. They have brought them. And, but everything else we, we, we destroyed. Then Samuel said to Saul, Wait and let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, It is not true. Though you were little in your own eyes, you were made the head of the tribes of Israel. And the Lord anointed you. He raised you up. He, he anointed you with oil as king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are exterminated. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but rushed upon the spoil and did what was evil on the side of the Lord? Then Saul says to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord. And went on the mission which the Lord sent me and have brought back Agag, the king of Amalek, Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took some of the spoiled sheep and oxen, the choicest things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Now this famous quote's coming up, but let's just stop there. There's this common thing in Christianity today, and I see it, I read it over and over. It's okay that you did it as long as what? No, they would never say that. <laughs> Although that's true. As long as you had good intentions. As long as your heart had good intentions. God will overlook it as long as your heart had good intentions. And if there was ever a case where that was going to happen, I think it would be here. Because I think in Saul's mind, I don't think he's just, we can have you know, opposing views on this if you want, but I think Saul's really convinced that he's done the right thing. And he was just listening to the people. It's your people, you know. Your Holy Spirit is not in every person at that time, but, you know, he's amongst the nation, and uh, this is a godly people. I think he believes he's done the right thing. Now, deep down, yeah, he's making all these excuses, but Samuel says, look, that God made it very clear what you're supposed to do. There is no excuse. Good intentions don't cut it. And here's what he says. Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. You can do all these nice things for God. You can have all the right intentions. But if you're not obeying clearly His commands that He gave you and they're so clear, then you're not following the Lord. And to heed, to do what He says, to obey, to heed, same kind of idea, is more important than the fat of rams. For rebellion, as is the sin of divination. What's divination? Witchcraft, sorcery, looking into the future, trying to, to commune with the spiritual realm, the dead. Uh, specifically, divination was trying to look 
into the future. And God hated the, those things. He hated that because to even come close to trying to really do that, you had to go through the demonic realm. And the demonic realm can fake uh, miraculous things and, and maybe God even puts them on a leash to where they can do some sort of things like the, um, the, the magicians in Egypt. Remember, they turned the water to blood, it says. God allowed that to happen. And so he hates that. And he's saying what, what Saul did is just as bad as sorcery and insubordination, not, not following those above you. In this case, God is as iniquity and idolatry. It's the same thing as worshiping idols. On this level, sin is all the same. And if you disobey God, then that's sin. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. So even though it really started back in chapter 13, when he didn't do as God said, and he went ahead and sacrificed, the final straw, if you want to put it that way, the final, really the final stroke that toppled the tree is going to be in chapter 15. So the next chapter, David's anointed, and the rest is focused on David, and Saul's just trying to kill David along the way. We have Goliath slain in 17. You're probably familiar with Goliath's story. Uh, it's not, Goliath doesn't represent your sin, doesn't even represent the devil. Uh, David's not representing Christ. Uh, of course, David's kingship does represent Christ's kingship. But here, it's just, the battle belongs to the Lord. This little bitty boy who used a slingshot can kill this massive giant with all this armor. And the Lord is the one that we turn to, not our own strength. Uh, 18's about Jonathan's friend, uh, David's friend and Saul's enemy. 24, David spares Saul's life. He keeps going back and forth. He, he's, he's convicted when he confronts David and David says, Hey, what have I done to you? I've done nothing wrong. The Lord is my witness. I've done nothing wrong. And Saul feels bad, but then he goes back home and he starts thinking about his, how he's going to lose all of his kingdom to David. And so he chases him down again. Uh, we have the story of David and Abigail. Question? Oh, no. I was just thinking that's interesting. He didn't want the kingdom to begin with. And now he's worried about yeah. losing it. it What's the thing about power, right? Yeah. Once you have it, it's hard to give it up. It's hard to give it up. 28, Saul and the witch of Endor, which is going to be an interpretive issue. Uh, basically, he goes to this witch, and he wants to um, figure out what's going to happen in the future. And uh, 31, Saul and his sons are killed. So that ends First Samuel. Saul's done, and then David has really full reign, but he's got to do some, some battle with some of Saul's um, people that are still out there fighting. Key passages, we just looked at 15, 20, and 23, to obey better than sacrifice. To obey is better than sacrifice. And then 16, 7. So we already saw where uh, Samuel said to Saul, God's going to find somebody after his own heart. And we see that actually happen in chapter 16, verse 7. Remember, this is where he goes to Jesse's house and all these brothers are coming through, right? like the, the phrase clan back there. You've got all these big, strong guys. They look like they could be kings, right? In this case, of course, David is just a shepherd boy. He's the one. Why? Why? Because that was the problem to begin with. They looked upon the outside appearance. But the Lord, verse 7, the Lord said to Samuel, because even Samuel's caught up, right? The Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For God sees not as a man sees. For a man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. That's what's important. What's in your heart? Not good intentions. That's not what he means. He doesn't mean, oh, David has good intentions. He's going to be a good king. No, what, what does that mean? God looks at the heart. David's heart is what? He fears the Lord. He follows God. He follows the God of Israel. Later, he's called a man after God's own heart. I don't know who that makes you, Britton. Are you the tallest? Yeah, sorry about that. Thanks, thanks for showing up today, the whole family, as an analogy. I promise not to mention you in the sermon. Key people, Samuel. We know Samuel, son of Elkanah and Hannah. He was a Nazarite. He was a priest. He was a judge. And he was a kingmaker. That's ultimately what his role becomes. He's a kingmaker with Saul. And then he does sort of a, a secret anointing of David. Uh, Saul is the first king of Israel, son of Kish, a Benjamite. 
first of many bad things Israel would suffer through. Saul is the first of many bad things. Uh, Hannah should be an, another line down, another bullet point. The wife of Elkanah, mother of Samuel. Eli, high priest, whenever we open the book of 1 Samuel, first gets started there. He's the high priest. He's the judge of Israel. So all these judges were in, in the book of Judges. By the time we get to 1 Samuel, the judge and high priest are combined into one sort of office, even though judge is not really an office. There's one main judge, Eli, but his wicked sons, Hophni and Phinehas, who are very immoral and were doing whatever they wanted with money and women. They were using their office uh, sinfully. Jonathan, eldest son of Saul, close friend of David. He's the father of Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth. Who's that? David's going to look for one of the descendants that are left of Jonathan, his friend. And he's going to bless him. And it's Mephibosheth. That's a good name for any of y'all about to have children. Mephibosheth. He's crippled. He was dropped, I think, if I recall right. He's dropped coming out of the womb or when he was born. And he's got a crippled leg. And so David brings him into his home and takes care of him. Uh, David, son of Jesse, anointed by Samuel as king of Israel, first of a few good kings. So there's David. Solomon has his ups and downs. There's a lot of bad kings, and there's only a few in the line after Solomon that are, that are good. Josiah, Hezekiah. A couple of good commentaries. First uh, Samuel commentary by Dale Ralph Davis. We've seen his name mentioned a few times. He's a funny guy. He put his sermons into a book. It's called Looking on the Heart. And then Bergen for First Samuel. Again, the New American Commentary. Let's look at some interpretive issues. I think there's seven. Is that right? We've got seven there. What are some problems you run into? You're probably not going to come up with this problem on your own, but it's out there. You might want to know about it. There's some, some issues in 1 Samuel where the best manuscripts we have, and they have holes in it. Not always literal holes, but there's just some words missing. They're not important words. They're often numbers. Uh, it's, it's difficult to determine what should have been there. Thankfully, the Lord supplies that information elsewhere. Uh, but because of that, some would say, the very best original manuscript is not found in the Hebrew. That's the Masoretic text. So let me note that for you. This is a Hebrew one. It's best reflected in the Septuagint and the Dead Sea Scrolls. So Septuagint, what's the date for that, Frank? Which book being translated? I don't, yeah, I don't know when First Samuel. Let's just say the 200s BC. Is that good enough? You agree with that? Close enough. In the 200s before Christ. Okay. Uh, Dead Sea Scrolls found in the, you know, 60s and on, right? But when were they written? Depends on which one Frank's going to say, right? First century. Is that good? You good? You going to say second? First, yeah, first century. So around the time of Christ, there was a group out in the wilderness and they're copying down books of the Old Testament and they're they're putting them in. Probably, probably what they did, I think, was when one wore out, it's the Bible, so you can't just throw it away. They put them in these jars, they sealed them up, they sealed up all these jars in caves. Later, they're discovered. Hebrew manuscript, oldest one we got, 900. I'm going with 900 AD. That's the, the Leningrad, right? Leningrad Codex. So, what's the problem here? It's not really a problem, but what, could, what appears to be a problem here? Our oldest ones aren't the Hebrew one. Now, this is not when, it, not, not when it was written here. Let's say, just to clarify, this is when it was copied. The oldest manuscript we can date is 900. Everyone that's a believer agrees it was written long before that, right? It's, it's written after David's reign. So what's the issue here? Well, normally you would want to go with the oldest, right? I mean, that makes sense. Well, the problem is, the oldest really has major issues, worse issues than our Hebrew manuscript with a few holes in it. So what am I going to choose? For those who care, the Masoretic text. I'm, I'm always, I don't know, Frank might be a Septuagint guy. I'm always going to go with the Hebrew as the closest unless there just is a major issue. But almost always. You know, the Septuagint says uh, Goliath is only six foot ten. And if you take the numbers in the 
The Hebrew text, the Masoretic text, Goliath is a giant. He's like nine foot or ten foot, something like that, right? So the Septuagint seems to have problems because it's translating over into another language. Anytime you translate, you're going to have issues. We have not major issues, theological, not major theological issues in English, but there are some words that they're hard to understand without a little knowledge of, of research back into the original. So why does this matter? Well, it, it does matter. Um, there are some translations of the Bible that are heavily influenced by the Septuagint. I'm going to show you one in a minute. You, I think you'll be surprised. Sometimes when scholars can't figure out what's the best translation, they'll have to pick one of these original documents to look at. I think the King James originally was based on Septuagint as well. So a lot of times the differences in the King James and some of our more modern translations will be the fact that King James is here, and then let's say like the ESV or maybe the NASB is using this text for the Old Testament. Again, I'm, I'm going to stick with the Hebrew. I think it's closer. The kingship. So here we already come up with a textual, textual issue, don't we? No, this is not it. Next one's, I think, a textual issue. The kingship. Is the kingship a good thing? Or is it a sinful thing? So one view would say that the biblical text is ambivalent or even contradictory. Right? Ambivalent means, doesn't say, contradictory means what? God's word is contradictory, right? The text is contradictory. At one point, God says he wants Saul to be the king, and then here comes Samuel saying, God said he doesn't want you to be king. And at one point, it's wrong to have a king, but then God appoints Saul as king. Well, what do you guys think about that view? Anytime you see the word contradictory in the Bible in the same sentence, probably it's not going to be correct, right? So go ahead and cancel that one out. The biblical text tends to be negative on the idea of kingship. Or, C, it's the right desire to have a king. It's what God planned on doing anyway, but the wrong motive and our timing. It was their timing and it was their hearts that were the issue. What do you guys think? Best answer? Greg, what do you think? Do you like C? I like C. Deuteronomy 17. Let's go there. We've got to go back to Deuteronomy. Remember what I said about Deuteronomy? Often, everything that follows Deuteronomy is going to point back to Deuteronomy or assume that the reader knows something of Deuteronomy. Whose idea was it to have a king in Israel? You think it's Israel, right? If you're just reading 1 Samuel, you think it's Israel. Go back to Deuteronomy 17, starting in verse 14. When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, and you possess it and live in it, and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me, you shall surely set a king over you, whom the Lord your God chooses. So he's looking forward saying, you're going to ask for a king, and I'm going to give you a king. Which means that it's really God's, plan, even though they're going to be the first ones to ask for it. Uh, the one whom the Lord your God chooses, one from among your countrymen, you shall set as king over yourselves. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not your countryman. Moreover, the, so here are the rules here of this king. He shall not multiply horses for himself. He shall not uh, cause the people to return to Egypt by multiplying horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never again return that way. So he's not going to go out and conquer and have this huge standing army. He shall not multiply wives for himself. That's going to become a problem, isn't it? Especially with, with whom? Solomon. Or else his heart will turn away, nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. And it goes on to say how every king is going to have his own copy of Deuteronomy, maybe even the first five books of the Bible. He's going to write it out so that he knows it. It's going to get put in his head and his heart. He's going to have his own copy. Well, they didn't do any of that. They did what they wanted. And then Samuel says, remember, he's, he's going to multiply horses, he's going to multiply gold. He's going to take your sons and daughters. The prophets, who are they? This, this applies to today. This applies to the New Testament. Who are these prophets? It's suddenly there's this group of prophets that show up. Before that, you had some prophecies, but now you have a class, almost a, a group of people in Israel called the prophets. Who are they? Are they ecstatic speaker? What's an ecstatic speaker? Just somebody who just starts like 
shouting things and acting crazy and sort of getting your attention. And today, ecstatic preachers sort of roll around, flop around, um, speaking tongues, but it's not really tongues. It's just words you can't understand. Is that what they were doing when they were prophesying? Are they being or falling into a possession or trance? That doesn't sound like what God would do to his prophets, right? So I'm going to help you out on these. Whoever I ask the answer, I'm just going to go ahead and knock off two there. Were they speakers under the influence of a power beyond themselves? Or communicators of Yahweh's message? What is a prophet? What is the main role of a prophet? Communicate God's message. That's the the role. What is prophecy in the New Testament? A communicator of God's message. Prophecy and speaking in tongues is two separate gifts in the New Testament. So they're not ecstatic speakers in the old or the new. Now you do have sometimes uh, people like Saul coming under the influence of a power beyond himself, but he's really just saying what God is saying through Saul. Remember Saul goes looking for David and he he comes under this sort of uh, prophetic utterances and he begins to act like a prophet for a while. Um, but the main role of a prophet is to speak God's words. That's why preaching nowadays can sometimes be called prophecy. I don't like that terminology because it confuses. And ever since Strange Fire, we have to be more careful. The Strange Fire Conference, not the Strange Fire phrase, passage that Frank's preaching on. See? Um, but there will be Puritans and even John MacArthur who will say preaching is prophesying. It is in the sense of communicating God's message from the scriptures. But we also associate with prophecy what? Future telling, foretelling, what's coming in the future. That I don't believe is still existing today. Um, Arguments for that have been made in another class. But here's the point. Communicating God's message. Communicating God's message. These are the words of God directly through a human spokesperson. The ministry of the Holy Spirit, it's different in the Old Testament. A few people argue that it's not different, but most conservative biblical scholars would argue that it is. So what's he doing in all these verses where he comes upon Saul? And it's debated whether Saul's even a believer. By the end of the book, he doesn't look very much like a follower of God in any sense. He's going to witches. And remember, Samuel's told him many years before that, divination is, is horrible. It's awful. Your disobedience is like divination. And where does he end up? With a diviner, a witch. So what's the Holy Spirit doing? Is Because if, if he's coming and saving people and, and entering into them to living them like he does in the New Testament, then we have a problem because Saul's not in any way acting like other people in the Scriptures. Uh, it doesn't mean people in the Scriptures don't ever sin that are God's people. But we just see a continual downhill spiral. It's about your lifestyle when you back up and look at it. And is Saul's lifestyle going good or, or bad? It's going bad. And since he's not mentioned in the New Testament in a positive light or in Hebrews 11, I don't think he was probably a, not a believer. Back to the question. Is the Holy Spirit giving of salvation when he comes upon people? Is he empowering them for God's service? Or is he doing a kind of election? Sort of a Holy Spirit anointing. That would be C, Holy Spirit anointing. What do you guys think? Let's look at just one of these, since we haven't seen it yet. Anybody got a, Anybody want to venture a guess? Anybody want to rule out one? I heard B. What else? What do you think, seminarian? You're going to go with B? We'll see if that's right in a minute. All right, uh, 10-6. Then the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you mightily, and you shall prophesy with them and be changed into another man. So this is Saul among the prophets. Uh, this is before he's even chasing David. Um, he has this prophetic experience here. But the Spirit of the Lord is doing that. Let's skip forward to 1920. Then Saul sent messengers to take David. 
But when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying with Samuel standing and presiding over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. Are they saved? Is that what the point is? Are they just sort of anointing these soldiers that Saul sent as prophets? Or are they being empowered for Yahweh's service? I'm also going with B. Thank you, Frank. Uh, Why? Because that's all it is. It's the Holy Spirit making something happen, and he is giving these people the words of God to say, even when they're enemies of God, like these soldiers who came to find David and kill him on Saul's behalf. Sometimes it's Saul who receives the Holy Spirit. Sometimes it's David. The Holy Spirit, I don't believe, is indwelling Old Testament believers. But he is regenerating. He is saving. But the question is, what is specifically is he doing in these verses? Empowering to serve God. He's, he's the Holy regenerates and saves the- he does regenerate. He does save. Because that's the only way a person can come to be saved. Right. Is through regeneration. There are some hints about that in the Psalms. Yeah, there are some hints about that in uh, Psalm 80. can't remember. Look up Bill Barrick's um, Psalm on Regeneration. But yes, it has to happen. Ezekiel talks about that. Um, the, the difference is the New Covenant promises the Holy Spirit to indwell in you. And the Old does not. So how long did Saul reign? Here's one of those issues with the, the text. We'll stop on this one. We'll do this one quick. Okay, who's got the ESV? Don't be shy. We won't cast you out. Okay. Read chapter 13, verse 1. Who's got the CSB? Anybody got a CSB? Anybody got an NIV? Promise nobody's going to... Frank's not going to beat you up afterwards if you got an NIV. Autumn's going to pull up the CSB. Um, I don't know who holds B. There's different views. We've got 40 years, 32 years, 42 years, 2 years, and then E is just, you know, doesn't really matter. <laughs> An expression of Saul's insignificant reign in God's eyes. We're going to rule that out because the scripture is a little more specific than that. Okay, let's find out. What are we going to, what are we going to hold to here? Um, ESV, go ahead. So Saul lived for one year, then he became king and reigned for two years over Israel. Okay? Uh, NASB. Who's got that? Debbie, you got that? Yeah. Saul was 40 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 32 years over Israel. So Saul was 40, and he reigned for 32. 32? And that's NASB. That's interesting. Mine says 42, and it's also the NASB. <laughs> we have inter-translation issues, don't we? Which means they're switching back and forth depending on the year that yours was published and mine was published. Right? I have an NASB and it says he was 30 years. 30 years old? And he reigned for how long? And he reigned 42 years. Yeah, so I have 30 years old and he reigned for 42 years, but Debbie had that he reigned for 32 years. 32 years. So there's, there's B. You have another option with the NASB. Y'all see there's a problem here, right? You, you don't have to know Hebrew to see there's a problem here. Um, last one, CSB. So we got 40, 32, 42, and 2. Which one's right? Well, if you look at the NASB, it has has italics for 30 and 40. What that means is it's not in the text. None of these numbers are in the text, really. That's that's why the the ESV is just trying to say 1 and 2, because that's all we got. We got Saul was years old, and he reigned blank two years over Israel. So what do we do? Well, Acts 13.21 solves it for us. Look at that. God knew that we needed some help with this, so he put it in the New Testament. Acts 13.21. going to read it. We're going to be done. I'm choosing 40 years, but you can see there's a textual issue here that they're trying to deal with. So Acts 13.21, this solves it for me, so they need to go back, and that's what the NASB did. They corrected uh, where there's nothing in the 1 Samuel manuscript. Here's what it says. Then they asked for a king. God gave them Saul the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. That 40 years is in the Greek. It is underlying the English text there. So if we're going to go with that being accurate in in Acts 13, in Paul's speech there, Paul's sermon, then we're going to go back now and make it 40 years 
in 1 Samuel. We have to because there's something missing there. It's like fill in the blank. God wants us to go forward, find the right number, and fill in the blank. So we're going to stop with that interpretive issue. We have two more next week. These are good ones. An evil spirit from the Lord terrorized Saul. What does that mean? And bring up Samuel. You witch of indoor, bring up Samuel. What happens there? Is that, a, is that really Samuel? Is that a ghost? Is that a demon? Is she just lying about talking to him? What's happening there? Lord, we thank you for our study today. We praise you for your word. You've answered the questions that we need. We don't have all our questions answered, but we know that you've answered what we need, and we're grateful for that. Let us not think that our sacrifices, that our, even our intentions are what matters most to you. As people who've been bought by the blood of Christ, it's our obedience that you seek for. We don't obey to earn anything. We obey because you've already given everything to us. So we thank you for that in Christ's name. Amen.